This is Cade Massey, practice professor at the Wharton School. On this week's Moneyball Highlights show, we talked to our guest, Dan Chavone. Dan is a co-founder of Zealous Analytics. He's also chief scientist there. Dan has worked at the highest level of baseball analytics. He's also at the very cutting edge of basketball analytics. Here at the end of the baseball season, in the start of the basketball season, we thought he's the best possible person we could talk to. So, a little conversation with Dan Trevone. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM. This is Cade Massey. As part of three quarters of the show today, three quarters of the crew, Eric Bradlow is here, Shane Jensen is here, and we have Dan Trevone. Dan is... A long time. He's a founder of Zealous Analytics and actually and a long time friend of the show. He's been on multiple times. He's one of the senior guys there. They're doing some of the coolest stuff. Also, Dan has a background in baseball. We're kind of at peak baseball right now. And NBA starting. They've got cool stuff going on with NBA. So we figured Dan was about as good as it could be for someone to have on today. We're always happy to have him on. Joining me for this segment are Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Dan, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me. You are based out of Denver, Colorado. I understand how are things in Denver, Colorado this fine Tuesday afternoon? Well, things are great now. It's like 70 and sunny. We're supposed to get our first snow on uh, this weekend. So right. enjoying it while lasts. Well, that's good. You want When you live in Colorado, you want some snow. That's, that's a natural part of things. Dan, exactly. uh, before you started Zealous with Doug Fearing and Luke Bourne, you were working in baseball. You worked at, I believe you were head of research there for the Dodgers. They're an esteemed organization famous for putting together a heck of a stats group there. So you've got a background in baseball. Of course, Dan is a Harvard stats PhD. So it's a rare combination, Dodgers, Harvard background. Dan, where does that leave you thinking about this year's Major League Baseball playoff? Setting aside any clients you may or may not have still in the race, how are you enjoying the season? How are you thinking about it going into NLCS Game 7 and a pending face-off with the Texas Rangers in the World Series? Well, you can't ask for more than getting two Game 7s in the championship series. Um, maybe we'll get another one in the World Series. And um, obviously being with the Dodgers for a long time, including the, losing the 2017 World Series, got to admit I was happy with the uh, with the game last night. Um I think the talk be, the, anti, that's a little shot at the Astros, but not, not the typical shot, the shot. That's a well-earned personal shot. Having knocked you out in 2017. I always forget that y'all missed that championship because y'all left just before they, they got theirs. Right. That's right. And that 2017 season really felt like, you know, as much as any year, it feels like the year it felt like the year that. That should have been. Yeah. The year that should have been. Um, but you know, one of the things with the themes about the baseball playoffs this year, right. Is that, yeah, nothing's for granted. Like the best teams um, got kicked out of the first round this year with the you know Dodgers and and Braves both falling. Um, and so you know, like there's been a long conversation about whether that's good for the game, whether like we need to change the format, something like that. Um, but you know, like that's might be a fun conversation for the off season. But I'm super excited for the World Series matchup. Uh, obviously, the Rangers have a great team, and then whoever emerges from the NL will be great as well. Mm-hmm. Where are you seeing teams with advantages, analytics-based, player development-based, technological-based advantages? I mean, obviously, it's just one source of edge. 
having a great starting pitcher, having a, some of the better hitters in the game, those are huge edges. Where are you seeing teams with edges these days in 2023? Yeah, I think in many ways the the most difficult challenge is, is putting it all together because in order to be a successful baseball team, like you kind of need the stars to align a little bit. Like you can't do it through free agency alone. Um, you can't do it just through player development. Uh, you can get pretty close by having, you know, amazing farm system, amazing prospects, but the teams that have won championships and been the most successful teams in baseball have both spent strategically in free agency and had a great consistent farm system that's delivered top tier prospects. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really like the teams that are doing it well are, are needing to execute on multiple, you know, different arms of baseball operations pretty seamlessly and tie that together in a pretty comprehensive, just overall organizational vision and decision-making framework. Um, so one, yeah, I mean, like, teams, yeah, go ahead. Well, one follow-up on that, and then I know Eric's trying to get in here, but we, we, we talk about player development and the importance of player development, and we laud teams like the organizations like the Astros for seeming to do that better than a lot of organizations. When you say farm system and free agency, what role is player development playing in those two things? Right, now? It used to just be identify the best people right? or pony up and pay the big dollar for the perfect free agent. But how much of it these days is, yes, identification, but also what we can add to that guy or where we think that person can be improved in our system? It, it really comes into both places. Um, I think the farm system is sort of an obvious home for player development. Um, you know, you have these couple hundred players who are under team control for many years. And so their development just depends entirely on the coaching and the sport and the resources they get. Um, but it's also very relevant for free agency and, and, and player acquisition. You know, oftentimes, like, the advantages that the best teams get, it's not because they're signing, you know, like a Bryce Harper, a Machado, a, you know, these, these like really marquee free agents. Those are known commodities, more or less. They're getting, they're getting edges for players who, you know, maybe they have some pitch type that's underutilized. Um, or maybe a team thinks that if they change this guy's grip, they can add an extra, you know, 200 RPMs to his fastball. So uh, it's understanding why players are good, not just like who's good and how good they are. Um, that is giving teams advantages for player acquisition, and that that those that knowledge comes through players um, through player development. Yeah, uh, Dan, I was thinking a lot about baseball analytics last night. I'd love to get your reaction. And really, it's about effect sizes. And here's what I mean: um, last night, the starting pitcher for the Diamondbacks was pitching great. Um, I think he was pulled after I think five or five and two thirds innings, where he had literally just struck out. I don't know. Harper, Bone, and et cetera. Um, Scherzer was pulled after, I think, two and two-thirds innings last night. You know, he had given up two runs, but he certainly wasn't getting shelled. And this is the classic approach now where it's a certain number of times through the lineup or it's, you know, but to me, something we've talked about on Moneyball, and I'd love to get your reaction to it, usually the way I think about it is every pitcher has a bimodal distribution. And when you have evidence that you're getting the good hump, Maybe you should stay with that pitcher a little bit longer. And so how do you think about this trade-off between I've got evidence that this is the good part of the distribution, this particular start, versus second time through the lineup? How do you think about that from an analytics perspective? Yeah, Eric, I totally agree. You know, the the numbers supporting, you know, platoon advantages, third time through, all that stuff, like they're very much there, but the effect sizes are relatively small. Um and the idea of, you know, a player has this bimodal outcome, you know, they may be dealing in a certain game 
I think there's truth to that. That's sort of like to some extent underutilized um, within baseball. Now, part of this is just like technological barriers. You know, the front office and the clubhouse can't communicate during a game. So it's not like you can have, you know, some analytics team just like looking at Scherzer through the first two innings, running numbers and just like making recommendations. Like it's not quite that simple. Um, you can't have somebody banging a drum or somebody in the outfield <laughs> holding up signs. It's the good hump or something like that. Um, well, this is an homage to, homage to the Astros, by the way, but go yeah. ahead. Yeah, yeah that, me, that's me, a championship me, winning idea for sure. <laughs> let me ask one clarifying question there. You could have somebody assessing in some fine detail, just not technologically assisted, how a pitcher is performing, right? If they, if they coded every pitch on some set of dimensions, they could I, I don't think they can relay – correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm not sure they can relay that information during the game into the manager. Oh, it would have to be someone on the bench to be doing these kinds of things. Like, I, th- I think they can obviously prepare for whatever they want ahead of the time, but I, I think there is a restriction on what can actually be communicated real-time during the game. Is that right? Yeah, well, certainly if, if the decision rule is as simple as something like velocity, you know, that shows up on the scoreboard. Right. Like, everyone knows what the velocity is. And so if it's just like – Hey, if Scherzer can hit 95 today, then then you know we should we should try and have him face you know 25 batters instead of 20 batters. Um, so you know you can imagine there being decision rules that are actionable by the coaching staff. Um, I'm not aware of teams that really operate heavily in that space where they're looking at what is a guy's stuff in game. How is what is sort of like wh- which part of this like bimodal distribution is he today? as opposed to just in general. Um, because I think there's definitely potential there. Right. So we, our, our buddy Adi is always talking about basically intra-pitcher variation as opposed to, we we just think as casual fans so much about inter-pitcher variation. We don't think enough about intra. So that's a minor theme in our show. Um, fellas, how do you, all three of you all think about going into this game seven? It's so much fun. But in the end, by the time we get to game seven, it feels like you're kind of going out to watch a, and this, I don't mean to be flippant, but it, it, does it feel like you're just going to go out and see which way the dice fall this time? I mean, do is there any basis for believing one team really has an advantage going into this game? How do you, I mean, honestly, how do you three think? When you're all going to watch the game, Eric's going to go to the game, Shane's decked out in Philly's gear mid-afternoon. How are y'all thinking about this great baseball moment from an analytics perspective? I'll just go first, but Dan, we care about. I was shocked that the Phillies are minus 185. I mean, I do understand the Diamondbacks had a more runs given, uh, more runs against than they did for this year. I get that. Um, I get that the Phillies are on paper maybe the stronger team. Um, they've played each other six times. They're three three. Um, if there is any, I mean, Shane's waiting for this. If there is any momentum, it goes. This is an inside joke, Dan. If there's any momentum, it goes with the Diamondbacks in this game. Um, we have Ranger Suarez against one of their best pitchers. I just don't see any reason that the uh, the Phillies would necessarily be a 60-plus percent implied odds team. It just seems way out of bounds to me. I think Fangraphs has it about 55% for the Phillies. And if you were to give them an advantage, I, I think that seems more reasonable to me. But, I mean, you know, 55-45 versus 50 I mean, just call it a coin flip. I mean, why – I, I think, you know, unless you're getting up into the 60, unless you're getting up into the NBA range of, like, you know, potential mismatches, just call it a coin flip. 
enjoy it for the coin flip it is i mean you know it's it's uh it's marvelous when it works out <laughs> Dan. yeah shane i mean i like i think that's you know when you get to a game seven and you play both these teams have played what like 180 baseball games something like that if you do the playoffs you know it seems crazy that one of them's going home one of them's staying on uh but that's kind of like the theater and drama of sports right is you know you don't play the game on a computer or on a spreadsheet like you go out there and pitch and hit and and, um, you know, some, sometimes the best players in the world strike out sometimes like, you know, things don't go what you expect. And that's, that's why we remember and love it. Mm-hmm. All right. Good fun. Good fun. We've got this one tonight. Then we've got a series in front of us. Hopefully we'll get another seven games out of it. Dan, uh, we're also kicking off NBA tonight. So we've got a new season starting as baseball is wrapping up. Zealous has began in baseball, but they, from the beginning, talked about expanding into other sports. And and you guys have now moved into bas- basketball, and you did it in an interesting way. You've got um, you, you. My understanding is that you pull in one of our old friends from Phil- speaking of the Phillies, one of our old friends, Andrew Galdi, Andy Galdi, running from baseball to help build out the basketball platform. Right. So a couple things about that. Uh, how do you think about? How, how can you educate us on analytics and basketball these days? So what's the cutting edge with analytics and basketball, but maybe we can get there through a little bit of what you guys are offering. I had a chance to talk to Luke Bourne, one of your fellow co-founders of zealous. And he said something crazy to me. He said, when you guys started this basketball platform, y'all estimated that it would be 30 man years, 30 person years to develop this thing. And then it took literally three years of development, real calendar time it's an extraordinary effort. Can you say much about what that platform looks like? What is it you're offering clients in the NBA space for basketball analytics? Yeah. So our, our basketball platform, which I think was the third sport platform that we built out, we had baseball first soccer came around. Um, yeah. You, you know, that usually that really well from a conversational Luke. And then, um, and then basketball was the third sport we invested in. And uh, the basketball is, is a really good fit for zealous because the, Basketball analytics landscape for professional teams has been, um, you know, they've had player tracking data for about a decade. Um, but the way they've used that has been through other vendors that provide the data and build analytics on top of it. And a lot of those metrics are um, just basic augmentations of box score statistics, things like, you know, effective or probabilistic field goal uh, percentages as opposed to or truck quality metrics, um, different rebounding metrics. There's automatic uh, play detection, which is similar to what a video scout would do. Um, there's not really a lot of work in the um, team side, at least there hasn't been to this date, on using kind of raw player tracking data to generate like foundational player insights. Um, and this was like the kind of perfect opportunity for Zealous to form partnership with NBA clubs because like... You know, my academic background and the work that Luke has done um, is very well suited towards answering these questions about, um, you know, what is the mechanism that generates value or that creates points um, well before a thought even happens. Um, understanding the way in which player emotions and decision makings, uh, you know, influence a possession. I'm hearing this and I'm thinking to myself that it's that that temporal moment of of, of value creation, or whatever, and, and, so, and you you brought up the kind of chess uh, chess kind of example or analogy, and I think a baseball similar to chess, and that most of the kind of va- temporal parts of these, it's still kind of a discrete sort of, you know, like almost instantaneous. You know, most of the value creation in baseball is almost an instantaneous value creation where somebody is like, you know, like hit a home run or something like that, or 
you know, throwing the throwing an amazing pitch, etc. Whereas obviously in basketball, it's just it's it's constantly moving, you know, ten or twelve different moving parts, and you're kind of accumulating like like the value creations kind of accumulating or whatever in a more continuous way. Do you guys find that? I mean, obviously the modeling of that is more challenging. Is it harder even to kind of think about that or communicate that to people? Yeah, yeah, it's much more challenging. Um, and honestly, like one of the challenge, most challenging things, right, is that there's no like, you, you know, there, there's no ground truth for what instantaneous value creation looks like. You know, if you think, for example, oh, this screen, this created like 0.13 points, like there's really no way to test that. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what we spend our time doing is not just building these models, but but validating and creating metrics around these that make them actually intelligible and actionable for our partner clubs. What, what you're you're talking about doing something that we talk about on the show again? It's a it's a theme for us, and and one phrase we've used is value, you know, uh, conversion versus creation. So historically, counting stats and box scores are about conversion. They're people who are actually putting it in the net, and we've gotten real good. Our kind of first generation of analytics, sports analytics, is about understanding the context for that conversion, and we want to give people a little more credit when they do it in difficult context. And you want to discount the conversion when they do it in a hard context. But we don't, we, in first generation sports analytics, we didn't talk about anything that created that context. We're always taking it away or adding it to, to condition out the effects that person faced at that moment. But then that robs anybody of any value if they help create the context. So, for example, a defensive back who can handle his wide receiver one on one, freeing up his other defensive backs to play, you know, doubles or zone or whatever, or, the, the QB who looks off the defender on the left side of the field so we can get an open guy on the right side of the play. That kind of creation. So am I right in thinking that that's what you're also talking about here? You're trying to, you're if if the value creation really comes from the, creating the context or changing the context, then you want to capture that and call that oh, yeah. the value. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there, there are nuggets of this, I think, even in box score stats, right, like in assists. Like, why do people keep track of assists, right? There must be this recognition that, you right. can have a and pass then, that creates a shot. And take that even further. Why is it that hockey has the double, the, exactly. the, the, yeah. the two assists, the assist to the assist? That's some kind of recognition that value creation yeah. starts further up ice or whatever. Eric. Hey, Dan, I just wanted to follow up on something I thought I heard you said, but I want to make sure for our listeners who are on Moneyball, I heard you right. Let's say uh, Zealous Analytics ingests some data, some interesting data, creates some set of metrics or win probability added or points added, et cetera. How do you validate that? I, did I hear you say that there's no real way to validate it? I'm just trying to understand, like, is there a way to, you know, in some sense, you could compare it to other metrics. But then again, if it's identical, then it's not a useful metric. It's not new. If it's uncorrelated with it, there's probably some loss of face validity because it's got to at least be correlated with some other metrics. How do you guys think about, you know, validating the numbers that come out of some algorithm that you build? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's one of the things that we think more about than almost anything else. Um, now, sometimes there is an easy answer. Like some, some things that we do are just predicting like how many home runs the guy hits or like how many games like the Thunder win. Um, and for those types of models, like obviously there's a validation pipeline where you can just do out a sample comparison and things like that. Um, compare against public metrics. So that's all very, very easy. Now we do a lot of work where we're trying to quantify things, um, such as, let's say, the value of a screen in an NBA position. I was just using your where, example of the pawn with the exclamation point, you know. Exactly. 
Yeah. Well, in that case, like people have chess engines, which are to some extent all knowing, right? And so they use those. Um, and we don't have like a basketball engine, at least not yet. So there, you know, the process is, um, you know, it's very like manual and labor intensive in addition to quantitative. Like we try and be quantitative as well. We have we have sort of a, a framework which we call meta analytics, um, based on a paper that that Luke and I and and, um, and uh, Alex Franks and Alex Moore wrote uh, a bunch of years ago, which is a way of doing sort of validation in a space where you don't have a ground truth. So we rely on things like that. We rely on just eye tests. We rely on uh, creating these dashboards where you have like video synchronized with like the predictive metrics, and you can sort of like see this frame versus that frame. All of that is to try and build some intuition around whether our design of trying to estimate these things is, you know, matching uh, what we're actually seeing. Dan, what do you anticipate being the first implication of these models? What are they? Are they first about personnel? At what, what point did they become in-game strategy? What, what, what do you think are the, I'm sure that some of the consequences you can't even anticipate yet, but what are you thinking are the most immediate consequences of, of, of seeing this, temp, these temporal moments of value creation better? Yeah, it's a good question. So our thesis with basketball, you know, back when we were thinking about, hey, 30 person years, like where does this get you? What are the next 20 person years after that? Where are those getting you? Uh, what we probably imagined is a focus on player projection where what we're doing with these really granular, you know, uh, value creation models is identifying skill among players. Mm-hmm. And the projection question is more like, how do you then combine the different skills within a player as well as the different collection mm-hmm. of players, the trends they end of wins or points or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, certainly in a number of sports, like that is the focus, like a focus on projection. Um, in basketball, what we found is that there's just tremendous value in understanding um, and quantifying player actions that that you observe on the court. And this idea of like a, a screen is worth point whatever point, like that has inherent value just by itself, even if you really do nothing with it. Um, there's really an appetite to process, understand, and, and kind of just like um, disseminate just how much each action or decision or movement is worth on the court. Dan, one last question before we have to let you go. We have watched you guys from the beginning. We've seen you begin, as you said, with baseball and soccer, now basketball. But you've recently received some financing and as a part of those statements said, we've built out our big sport platforms and we're going to use this next round of financing to move into some new territories. So can on the way out here, can you tell us where Zealous is going? What We haven't thought about you in working in these I don't know what, it's probably not Olympic sports, but where are you going next with this next round of financing? Like, for example, could you go into something like hot dog eating as an example? <laughs> oh God, please don't answer that. That was just so. for, yeah. uh, I mean, <laughs> if you have a contract in mind, um, we'll certainly take a look at it, but that wasn't <laughs> top of our list. Uh, so Kate, you mentioned that the, the sort of six major team sports. So that's baseball, basketball, American football, soccer, cricket, and hockey. Um, at this point, we have operations in all of these sports. We have clients in all these sports. Um, and, you know, what we're looking towards next and what the, the recent funding that we've closed really helps us do this is um, potentially looking at some individual sports. So things like esports, things like golf, possibly tennis, possibly racing. These are areas where there's sort of a, a large enough business for us to operate. There's data and analytics that can help the different actors in these spaces become more successful. 
And in particular, like one thing that's really exciting from a business perspective is that you don't have this like market cap of like there only being 30 teams or only being 32 teams. Right. And so I think from a growth perspective, that's particularly exciting. Um, and, um, you know, beyond that, I think like one of the theses of Zillow's is that the reason why we're working with pro teams is because this is where, you know, analytics is most advanced and most mature. Um, and so by working with teams, by having access to the best data, by having the best partnerships, we sort of are on the best path towards developing really powerful intellectual property. And so that empowers us to tackle adjacent opportunities that come up that are related to all the sports that we work in, but aren't necessarily involved having a pro team as a client. Okay. So Dan, that sounded very businessy and this is a business station. So that's appropriate. And we were curious about the strategy, all appropriate, but now from a researchy stats, PhD, purely intellectual perspective. And quite personally, it's not Zealous's fault how you answer this question. What are you most interested in? You personally, what sport would you most like to tackle? What are you curious about? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I like what I'm really excited about is, you know, my background in sports research, like really started with the player tracking era. And we're sort of uncovering a new era with um, kinematics and biomechanics. Um, for example, actually, I mean, not a lot of people know this, but this tomorrow night or tonight, actually, uh, NBA opening night will be the very first time that we have in-game basketball biomechanics data being collected. Um, so we're going to start having access to that tomorrow, um, as are all teams. So things like that are extremely exciting from you know the research perspective, because all of a sudden, here we are again, where we have this data source that um, is really complex, is really exciting from a technical perspective, but also from a sports perspective can really change the way we you know, think about that temporal moment of value creation. Right. And new dimensions like player injury and, and health and these other yeah. these yep. obvious things. From that. Well, that's exciting. And I didn't realize that that was going to be uh, begin to be tracked comprehensively tonight. So that's exciting and good to know. Dan, thanks, man. Always good to talk to you. Appreciate you making time for us. Thanks for having me. Dan Travone, Dan is co-founder and principal data scientist at Zealous Analytics. He was the former director of quantitative research for the Dodgers. Before that, he got his PhD in stats at Harvard with those guys back there at the beginning of the spatio-temporal revolution. That has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. For the whole crew here, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner in absentia, Matty Dats, the boss man, Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.